Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Stephen Hayes as our guest for the second of two podcasts. This will be on the application of his work in the health arena, but the previous podcast, which I urge you to listen to as well, talks about the general principle of human processes that uh, Steve has studied. He's done some pioneering work in thinking differently about human behavior in ways that have had a big influence on the field of psychology. Um, Steve at the University of Nevada at Reno has done pioneering work on acceptance and commitment therapy as well as work in other areas. He's the author of more than 30 books and 400 scientific articles, uh, has been named as one of the highest impact psychologists in the United States, has been uh, featured in Time Magazine for his work, and has served as the leader of a number of professional organizations in the U.S. So Steve, welcome to the second of the two podcasts. I'm happy to be here. So you spoke about uh, acceptance commitment therapy in general and some of the principles that underlie it, but I know that you and other people who uh, have been using this therapy have applied it in health domains, diabetes, weight, physical activity, and things. Could you explain why you think it's applicable in those areas of human behavior, and then we can get to some specific examples. Well, if you focus on the principles that we talked about last time, of acceptance, mindfulness, and values-based action. When, if you take something like uh, uh, weight, you know we know a lot about some of the behaviors, and you've been a pioneer in developing that work. Uh, some of the behaviors that are involved in being able to step up to that uh, challenge, but we need to put it in a psychological context that empowers that people have to be motivated and motivated properly, and they have to deal with the barriers that come up in actually doing that and making dietary changes, exercise changes, and and, and so on. Well, uh, we've shown, for example, is that if you uh, take our the book uh, that was mentioned, Get Out of Your Mind Into Your Life, and you build uh, a short protocol around it, just six hours long, that teach people basically how to apply these principles. These are people who are in weight maintenance. They've already been through six months of uh, weight loss pro- programs. And in fact, in the sample of the study I'm thinking of that's coming out, in, or just came out in Annals of uh, Behavioral Medicine, uh, on average, they'd been in 37 programs uh, previously. So you're talking about organized programs, I think it was nine, but they'd made 37 previous efforts uh, to lose weight. And anybody who's struggling with this knows what that's like. Uh, and I used to be 40 pounds heavier than I am now. And it wasn't until I applied these principles to my own uh, behavior, it finally occurred to me after 20 years of doing this work, duh, uh, that I actually finally get the, uh, a better handle on it. What we were able to show, if you just build a six-hour protocol around that, we didn't have anything in there, not a word, about diet, behavior, exercise. That wasn't what we're doing. When we build full protocols, we should do that. But our point was we could empower what people are already doing because most of the programs that are out there, the good ones, are reasonably sensible. Well, they have good advice, but people can't stay with them. They can't stay with them. What we found is that uh, uh, we got much better outcomes, immediately better outcomes in quality of life, self-stigma, blood pressure, and then longer-term outcomes in uh, body mass index. Just by empowering people to do that. And we know something about how that happened. Uh, when people became more accepting and of their own uh, emotions and, and more mindful of their thoughts that stood in the way of implementing this advice that they're giving and more connected with their values, that produced the outcomes. 
even down to, let me give you a little uh, example. We had people hold their breath at the beginning of the workshop as long as they could. And at the end of the workshop, six hours later, we asked them to hold their breath again. That predicted what would happen three months later. Oh, my goodness. And in, in how much weight they lost. Oh. Look, here's the message. If you can't sit with discomfort in a self-compassionate way, not in a tough-it-out, grit-your-teeth way, but in a kind of an open, loving way, if you can't do that, you cannot do hard things. And uh, fitness and exercise and, and diet, and these are hard things and not easy. They're among the hardest things on the planet to do. Uh, so... Uh, uh, that's what we've uh, been able to show is, is changes in those processes are possible and they predict good outcomes. Well, when you were doing work in the weight area, what would be some examples of thoughts that would get in the way or feelings that people have that they wouldn't be well, able I'm, to confront? I'm never, I'm never really going to change. I've done this a hundred times. I'm always going to fa fail. Or we've shown recently uh, self-stigmatizing thoughts like uh, I don't have any control uh, or uh, thoughts about others people stigma towards you. People don't want to be with me because I'm too fat. Those things actually predict bad outcomes. And uh, what, what it shows is you're not going to be able to change by a wagging finger pointed at yourself. If you ever, you know, there's a part of us that resists that. If you think back at when you were a little kid and you had folks literally wag fingers at you and tell you what to do, part of you kind of wanted to dig in your heels and say, you can't make me eat my vegetables. <laughs> well, we do the same thing. And so uh, just watch your own mind. You'll see, you know, like, this time I'm going to do it. Well, part of you is saying, no, I'm not. And you can't make me. Well, so the, you're not going to get flexibility by self-stigma and self-blame. And it's such an easy mode of mind to get into when you have a chronic problem that you've struggled with for a long time. It has to be kinder and gentler. So our, and what we've shown in the weight area is that we can improve quality of life, reduce self-stigma, reduce the sense of a, a stigma from others very quickly. And that will actually predict positive outcomes if the process for doing that isn't just a sort of Stuart Smalley, rosy glow, but instead is really kind of holding yourself in a more compassionate way. That process will allow you to hold yourself in a more compassionate way when you're sweating during exercise in the gym and you're afraid people don't like looking at you, or when it really feels uncomfortable to push that you know, piece of food away and, and just not take that final bite or open that refrigerator at 11 at night. Uh, or not put the money into that vending, vending machine for that Mars bar. Uh, those things are uncomfortable. And so learning to sit with it in a compassionate way is a critical process. One nice thing about the way you're talking is just sort of throwing out the, the old script and saying we've got to take a new approach to this. And yeah. when somebody has, you know, when we're professionals and we see people in clinics and they've been on 37, 38, 39 different programs and stuff. It, it, is, it does seem sort of silly to think, well, the 40th is going to be the one that works if it's pretty much the same as the others, just rehashed or repackaged or, you know, it's a little bit different approach to diet. And you're saying, let's throw all that out. Let's not worry about the technique so much, but figure out what's really going on people and what's holding them back. Well, in our early research, we've done that to make a point. But actually, I think in the, there's a lot of wise things in those programs. We have to find a way to empower that. 
And the empowering isn't just creating the flexibility by acceptance and mindfulness. It's also connecting with your values. And if I can give you an example of that, if you ask people why they want to lose weight or become fit, what will quickly come out of their mouth often are things that are not really what they value or what they want to be about. You know, like, I won't feel so uncomfortable about myself. Well, would you want that on your gravestone? You know, here lies Susie. She stopped feeling uncomfortable about herself. I mean, it just doesn't seem important. I get that it's painful to feel uncomfortable, but that's not really. What, and so if you take the time, and it takes some time, to listen carefully to what's inside you and really say, what do you really want to be about? I mean, it might be about, you know, I want to dance with my partner. I, I, I want to be there for my grandkids. You know, I want to travel. Uh, I used to enjoy, uh, you know, going out into nature, and now I don't feel comfortable doing that. It feels like too much effort even to walk up that hill. Well, if you can connect with that, and it's not a matter of getting away from anything, but a matter of going towards something, what we've been able to show is if you connect with values that are the kind of things that unfold over time and never finish, they're more like, what do you want to be about? Uh, they're not something like you have, like an object you can put in a box. It's not just a goal, like the scale said, you know, 130 instead of 160. So what? It's about something. That will help people walk through the pain if you don't do it as finger-wagging. So you need both. We've shown that you need both. If you just do the values without acceptance and mindfulness, it doesn't work. Acceptance and mindfulness alone will help, but it isn't really fully empowered until you connect it over into these approach-oriented, not avoidance-oriented, mm -hmm. and long-term, not short-term, and deep, not shallow, uh, issues of meaning and purpose. So you could go into the exercise example. You know, most programs will say, okay, well, here's the way to go exercise, and you do this many reps with that machine, and you use this technique with this machine, and that's all good. You're not dismissing the importance of that, but you've got to get to the point where you're ready to take that on and, and continue to do it and things, and that's where you're working. We've shown that, and we, we have a recent uh, study showing just on the values end if you look at the deepest resonance through, um, we've been using measures of implicit cognition, what are the things you really want? Because sometimes people, when you ask them what they want, they say what they think they're supposed to say. You know, what somebody told them to say, that doesn't move you. It's the stuff that's there when it, it's 3 in the morning and you're thinking and it, it's just there and you know it. It's between you and you. It's between you and the person in the mirror. And we've used these methods of implicit cognition to sort of dig down to what do people really want. And we've done work actually in the gym where we give people the kind of thing you're talking about, advice, you know, like when you're spinning, make sure to keep your back straight, et cetera, and look to see the, do people exercise harder and better and longer. And then conversely, we've popped into the room and think about your grandkids and what eventually this will mean for you. Or think about how much you used to enjoy dancing. And boom their exercise intensity goes up, their persistence goes up, the stick-to-itiveness goes up. So it's one of these things of working through and finding out what it is, and then, yeah, building in reminders and remembering that fitness and health is not just about one thing, it's about many, many things. Uh, those are the kinds of things that can help you over those barriers. And so you've mentioned the application of this work to the weight area and to the exercise area. 
And you mentioned uh, earlier when we were speaking that some people have done, or maybe you have, work on diabetes. We have. did a, a, a trial which showed that just three hours of training in acceptance, mindfulness, and values uh, led to a 50% reduction in people in, uh, increase rather, in people in blood glucose control three months later. And we compared it to an American Diabetic Association approved educational program, which basically gave people the information they need, but not the emotional psychological skills they need. My, uh, I have a three-year-old uh, son, and my wife developed gestational diabetes uh, in that process. And I know what the healthcare system does with that. We got the, the, the little pamphlets and, you know, and how to you know, do the shots, because we actually had to go all the way to insulin to, re to regulate it, and how to test it and read the numbers. And we would, and the diet and so forth, and adhering to the diets, doing all the things, we'd poke the finger, I say we, because we'd do it together, and look at the numbers that come up, and we'd literally hold ourselves and cry, because the numbers were bad. And we're thinking, you know, the baby might be harmed. And the, the, the idea that we could bring people into a health system and tell them things like, you know, you're going to lose your feet if you don't do something. You're going to go blind if you do something. And then send them out the door with leaflets like that is preposterous. It's cruel. And it, make, it makes no psychological sense. You need a, the psychological ability to stand up with a, the, 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 the pain and horror of a chronic disease. And you can do it pretty quickly, but you have to do it. And when we combine that information in the protocol we use. We had three hours of ADA-approved education about diabetes because you need that. This was mostly with people in a public health clinic, mostly minority folks. Uh, and then we also gave them uh, some training on how to hold the, the fright, the difficult thoughts, and remember your values. What are you up to? It isn't just about not you know, going blind. It's about being there for others. It's about love and community and participation, things that are big and important to you. That combination uh, led to greater self-management and the combination of flexibility of, I'm talking about and greater self-management, greater distress tolerance produced the blood glucose. Because not only did we get the reductions, but we knew they came through that process when we did the, the scientific work. Uh, so there's a message, there's a general message in here, and I'm horrified to think of how little of it is in the health system and how harsh we are to ourselves and others in the way that we're trying to deal with these behavioral challenges in the physical health area. You know, Steve, what, what I admire, I, I admire a lot of pieces of what you do, but one of the things that's most impressive is you're one of the few people in our field, in psychology in general, who has the big thoughts you think about things in a different way. You're kind of looking at fundamental aspects of human behavior, but then you put it to a test in very carefully controlled research. Those two things don't often go together, but you do them. But there's also a, a compassionate humanity part to this that's really nice. And when you put all that together, it's really a very impressive package. So I could see how this would have such a big impact and affect the lives of so many people. I think we as scientists and as clinicians and also as individuals uh, have to find a way to put all those elements together. I mean, Western science is probably the best filter we've ever found for how to come up with things that help people. But if it's not informed by human compassion and by our values, it's a loose cannon on the deck and it can take you in many places. After all, you know, science also gives us this constant flow of things that make life easier, which we kind of like. But then without the cultural changes that then teach us how to tolerate small amounts of distress, 
You know, we're, we're raising an entire generation who can't look at a television program that has the same topic that lasts more than 30 seconds because they've done the research and they know if it doesn't shift, the kids uh, uh, lose that. The spiritual and religious traditions used to teach it because that was the place that you did small amounts of distressing things in a values-based context. You fasted, you got on your knees, you deprived yourself of things, and you offered it up. I was, that's the way my mom used to, uh, she'd say, offer it up, offer it up, if it was something I didn't like. She'd remember other people are suffering. Well, now we've got a culture that seems to have this idea that if you feel good from morning to night, you're going to live well. It's not true. The science shows it's not true. But science can actually feed that process and create more and more of a feel-good culture. If you've got the right pill, you know, the right beer can, the right vacation, the right car, the right woman, you know, then life is good. It's not true. It's never been true. And we need to find a way to create a wiser mind for this uh, feel-good uh, society that is all around us. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Uh, before we end, I'd like to mention again the name of the book that Steve has written called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, which is a self-help book that talks about the applications of these principles for individuals that can apply to a lot of different areas of their life. Um, and also there's a website, uh, if you could, wouldn't mind repeating that, where people can go to for the more academic work and blogs and various things. It's uh, Contextual Psychology, all one word, contextualpsychology.org. Or if you just Google uh, acceptance and commitment therapy or even my name, it'll show up. Okay, good. Well, thank you, Stephen Hayes, for uh, joining us today. Steve, it's been a real delight having you here. Thanks for having me. So again, this is part of the podcast series from the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. Uh, we uh, welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of resources, including a free email newsletter, uh, information in a variety of areas related to obesity and food policy, and of course, a list of uh, the various podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.